Welcome to MaryCast. This is Dr. Mark Miravalli, Professor of Theology and Mariology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And I'm overjoyed with the possibility of talking to you about the Mother of Jesus today. And we're discussing, and we have been pondering the idea of too much Mary, too little Mary, Mary in excess, Mary in defect. How's one to know? How do you know what a truth about Mary is so that you can then have a balanced love of the mother of Jesus? Well, ultimately, we have to get to the question of what are the legitimate sources of divine revelation? And I ask you to bear with me here as I offer you some distinctions on the sources of how we are to know what God's will is. Because until we can establish what are acceptable uh, avenues, channels of God's will, revelation sources of God's will, then we can't really talk about correct doctrine, right doctrine, and even right interpretation or right practice regarding Jesus, Mary, the church, and all the things that are contained in the gospel. So I want to talk briefly about what is classically known as the sources of divine revelation. Now, from a Catholic perspective, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, and for those who are not Catholic, the Second Vatican Council was a meeting of the cardinals and bishops of the world uh, under the direction of the Pope in a guidance of doctrine for today. In other words, how does Jesus wish us to bring the truth of God to the world today? And that's considered an ecumenical council. That means a, a council whose decisions will affect all of the Catholic world. So the Second Vatican Council was an ecumenical council under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, guiding the Holy Father and the bishops of the world to make a new application of truth for the church today. So the Second Vatican Council, in its document De Verbum, on divine revelation, tells us the following, that there is one twofold source of how God speaks to man, one twinfold channel of his revelation. The first aspect is what we call tradition. Now, this is not simply something passed down in closets or handed down uh, as a small tea tradition or something you might do in your local town. We're talking about the oral truths, customs, methods uh, of Jesus Christ that he gives to the apostles under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and that are handed down, that's what traditio means in Latin, that are handed down under the guidance of the Pope and the bishops in union with the Pope. So tradition is the oral truth that Jesus gave the apostles that has the same guidance from error in the, in the sense of being an authentic source of truth as we have in the New Testament. In fact, we have to be very specific historically, and I, I want to bring you to the year 34 AD. We're talking now about the year after Jesus died, rose, and ascended into glory. What's going on in 34 AD? And here's a couple questions we have to ask ourselves. First of all, is there a saving gospel in 34 AD? Is there the role of priest? Well, we know that because, of course, at Emmaus, Jesus gave them the bread, which in fact becomes the Eucharist, right? He, he consecrates. And they recognize him in the breaking of the bread, like what he instituted at the Last Supper. Are there bishops? Well, we certainly know there's apostles. 
uh, is there baptism? Well, we know that because indeed there is baptisms of, of some of the earliest Christians that's recorded in the Acts of the Apostles. So in 34 AD, the ultimate question is, is there the saving church of Jesus Christ? That if you choose to believe in this gospel, you will attain eternal salvation. Well, my friends, most every Christian answers yes to that. Yes, after Jesus dies and, and rises and, and Peter starts baptizing in the apostles, salvation happens. What's the point? The point is that you do not have the first writing, the first letter of what today we consider to be the New Testament for at least another 10 to 15 years. And what that tells us is that even before the written New Testament, you have tradition. And it's a saving tradition. And it's a tradition guided by the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives the early church. This tells us that tradition comes first with the oral gospel. Well, then what happens? Well, what happens is the evangelists, uh, the disciples under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write down several significant disciples and apostles, the evangelists, write down what in fact they've seen and heard from Jesus. And then you have Paul writing his letters. So the, the, the combination of those things under the guidance of the same spirit written in the same church becomes the New Testament. But what's very, very important for us to remember is that the New Testament is the child that comes to us from the church, from the living, breathing church, which is its mother. In other words, it's only from the tradition that Jesus gives that you then have that tradition written, which becomes the New Testament. And as a matter of historical truth, it's the early church that determines which of all the early Christian writings constitutes what we call the canon of the New Testament and which do not. This happens in 393 at the Council of Hippo, uh, presided by St. Augustine and later confirmed in 401 by Pope Innocent I. Again, the, the point is, it's the church that establishes which of all the early Christian writings is the, is the New Testament. So here we come to a point of logic. If you accept the New Testament as divinely inspired, it's only logical that you would accept the authority of the church that selected it as such. And let me mention that again uh, in, in, in a negative format. If you didn't believe that the Catholic Church was guided by the Holy Spirit, you didn't believe in that authority, it wouldn't make much sense to believe in the New Testament which the church selected. And that's why we say that there is first tradition, and secondly, Scripture in the form of the New Testament especially, that is that one twofold channel of God speaking to us. Abba Father is our loving Father, right? He's more loving than any human father. He doesn't want us led astray. He doesn't want us trying to live the Christian life in ignorance. Of course He's going to reveal Himself to us. He does it first of all in Jesus, and then He does it through tradition and Scripture. So, as the document Dei Verbum tells us, Scripture and tradition must be equally reverenced with equal feelings of devotion and reverence as the authentic Word of God. One is written, but remember, keep very much in mind, before the written version was the oral saving version that Jesus gave to the first apostles and disciples. So that's Scripture and tradition. Now there's another aspect, another component of how we get God's will and how we get it correctly, how we get it right. 
That's called the magisterium, from the Latin word magister, which means teacher. What's the role of the magisterium? Well, the magisterium constitutes the pope and bishops in union with the pope, which make up the official teaching authority of the church. This magisterium, this teaching authority, goes back to Jesus, who installs Peter in Matthew 16, 15 through 20, to be the rock upon which the church will be built. And in the Greek, in the Aramaic, that rock is singular. It's masculine. It's only one person. It's not all the apostles. It's Peter. And Jesus changes the name of Peter from Simon to Peter to designate a true change that's taking place. So Jesus has enough wisdom to say, I can't expect my revelation to stay pure, protected, uncontaminated, unless I give an authority to guide it, an authority in service. That's what the magisterium is. Now let's be clear. The magisterium is not a source of revelation. What do I mean by that? The magisterium can't come up with doctrine. The task of the magisterium is simply to say, what is present in scripture and tradition authentically? Secondly, what's a proper application of scripture and tradition for today? Now at this point in our in our cast, you're saying, what does this have to do about Mary? Why are we talking so much about scripture and tradition? And that's why I want to say, it's only because scripture and tradition, as protected by the authority that Jesus gave it with the Pope, it's only through this that we can properly guard against, again, too much Mary, too little Mary. And when we return with the next segment, we're going to ask the question, how can a Catholic believe in a truth that may not be explicitly in Scripture. And how do we know the full truth about Mary? Come back with us in the next segment on MaryCast. Thanks. God bless you.